Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. I see the law by, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. That's the sermon. When I was studying the Sermon on the Mountain Seminary, I came across St. Timothy Keller's sermon on the, on the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he actually, the sermon that he preached just changed the way I thought about the Sermon on the Mount completely. And he looked at the Sermon on the Mount and he said, there is a gospel goodness that vastly surpasses religious righteousness. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. There's a gospel goodness that vastly surpasses religious righteousness. I can't beat that. So that is the sermon. You can, that's, you can write that down and close your notes. If you want to stick around to hear that unpacked, then great. Um, the mo- this morning's goal is to just unpack that claim a little bit, to, to explain it and investigate it. We're in Matthew 5, verse 13 through 20. Last week, Jesse very beautifully expounded the Beatitudes, which kind of kick off the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, we read. And Jesse helped us see how Jesus' ideas of power differ from the world's ideas of power. And they do, profoundly. But very quickly now, we see Jesus' sermon take a kind of surprising turn. If the Beatitudes say, here's how my disciples are different than the world, then the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount says, here's how my disciples are to be different than the religious. And the key is verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, who were, of course, the scrupulous, law-keeping religious people, who had hundreds, over 600 laws built around the law so that they wouldn't disobey any, any, any little bit. That's religious righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount explains how the gospel, how gospel goodness, can exceed Pharisaical religious righteousness. That's kind of what the Sermon on the Mount is, is about. So Jesus doesn't say to the, you know, the pagans murder, those worldly pagans murder, but you shouldn't. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, quoting the Ten Commandments to religious people. But I say, whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. He doesn't say to, you know, the pagans commit adultery, but you should not. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, quoting the Ten Commandments to religious people. But I say, whoever looks at another lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. He doesn't say in chapter 6, 16, the pagans don't fast, but you should. He says to the religious people, when you fast, and you will be invited to fast this Lent, when you fast, don't do it like the religious hypocrites who are feigning piety for recognition, and so on and so forth. You see, most of the Sermon on the Mount is not contrasting Jesus' disciples with the world, but Jesus' disciples with the religious To put it hyperbolically then, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount says that Christianity is the end of religion. Bad religion, at least. We prayed this morning for true religion. It's the end of bad religion, the kind that makes people uptight and hypocritical 
and legalistic, the kind of people who, who look down their noses at everyone around them who's, who's disobeying God and not obeying the Ten Commandments. Some of us, most of, most of us maybe at one point, but definitely all of our neighbors and friends and, and coworkers who are not Christians, probably think that Christianity is, is basically about adhering to some morals and ethics. A religion started by Jesus. But that is not the heart of Christianity. That's part of it in the end, but it is not the heart of it. And Jesus' sermon, sermon shows us that. So there's, there's a brief explanation of the context. What's coming into view here in this sermon is not Christianity versus the pagan world, but bad religion versus gospel goodness. Now I want to investigate this claim. How is gospel goodness better than religious righteousness? Three ways. And the first way is it is saltier. Religious righteousness is foolish, but gospel goodness is salty. Now, not salty as in millennial slang for annoyed or grumpy after you lose a video game or whatever, but salty like the white stuff that makes potatoes edible. Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, Jesus says to his disciples. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, in antiquity, salt was used in a way that is both familiar to us and unfamiliar to us. First, familiar to us, it flavors things. Everyone has always, for all time, preferred corn on the cob with salt on it. Notice, however, that salt does not actually replace the flavor of the food that you're eating. It enhances it. No one eats a perfectly seasoned T-bone steak and says, my, this is some delicious salt. You know, the, it's the, it, salt makes the thing better. It doesn't point to itself. It points to the thing. We're less familiar with the second use of salt in antiquity. Salt is a preservative. Lacking refrigeration, salt was rubbed into meat to to slow down decay. This is why salt kind of stings a wound, for example. Slows decay. It cleanses. Now, the analogy for discipleship for you and I is is very simple. Disciples of Jesus are called to be salt, meaning we're called to enhance and flavor the world, not drawing all the attention to us, how great are we, but, but flavoring and enhancing the world we've been given, the culture we've been given, the families, the small groups, the, the workplaces, but also to preserve, to resist moral and spiritual decay. Now, some of us feel way more at home in the flavoring role. You know, we work hard to look for ways to improve a workplace, to, to improve a, a relationship or a government or, or a neighborhood or whatever. These are usually the glass-half-full people. They're the, the, there's always a silver lining. Uh, there's, you know, they see a broken neighborhood where everyone else runs away, they run in. A broken relationship, a broken person, they run away, these people run in. That's the call of a disciple, to flavor, to enhance. But others of us feel more at home in the preserving role, prophetically resisting the moral and social decay of our culture. We, we heard a bit about Jesse's story last week and how he was, a, he was a prophet in those early California years. Resisting the social decay of culture, these, these prophets, they confidently embody and declare God's ways to the world. They warn, they exhort, they rebuke. Others are maybe comfortable floating along with the status quo. They're just hoping not to rock the boat. But these people are not afraid to sting. They're not afraid to confront if it means they're like salt cleansing a wound. Now, these two purposes are obviously intertwined and connected. Either one of these in isolation isn't salt. That's the point. It flavors and it preserves. So the progressive tendency, the the progressive arm of the church, the tendency there is is to flavor and not preserve. And the fundamentalist tendency in the church is to preserve at all costs and not flavor. The gospel calls us to both. You are to be salt by securely and boldly embodying God's words 
to a culture that disagrees and thinks you're crazy. His words on money, his words on sex, his words on power, on relationships, even when it seems insane or offensive to your boss or your peers, your neighbor, maybe even sometimes yourself. I was talking with one of our, someone this week who, um, in their setting, it was a young person in school. I'm not going to get more specific than that. In high school, their, their setting was all their teachers and their peers, like they're studying art history and, and they're constantly finding Christianity being belittled and dismissed and misrepresented over and over and over again. And this person's feeling lonely and isolated in their class, and yet they're called to be salt there and light there, and they're wrestling with that tension. So the gospel calls us to both. You're to, you're, you're to boldly embody his words to a world that thinks you're crazy. Preserve. But you're also to do so not because you're so great and the world is so bad, but because the world is good. It's like a good T-bone steak, just needs a little flavoring, right? It's good. It's worth preserving. It's worth enhancing. And we hold these things in tension. We don't stand apart and preserve because it's the worst. We enter in and flavor and and preserve because it's good. And that's kind of the difference between religious righteousness and gospel goodness. Now, when Jesus cautions us against salt that loses its saltiness, what does he mean? Sodium chloride, for you scientists, you know that it is a stable compound. Salt in the ancient world, though, contained many impurities, and so what would happen is the actual salt, being more soluble than the impurities, could be leached out, and it would leave this dilute residue that once was salt. So salt that loses its saltiness is a good thing, maybe like religion, that has lost its purpose and become something useless, kind of like the pharisaical religion that Jesus is putting in his crosshairs, religion gone wrong. So Jesus actually uses a very interesting turn of phrase here. When he says loses its saltiness, elsewhere in the New Testament, that same word is used to mean to become or be, to make or become foolish. To make or become foolish. Matthew 7, 26, when Jesus summarizes and concludes the whole Sermon on the Mount, he's kind of summing it up and he says this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Same word, tasteless salt. A foolish man who built his house on sand. And so you see now, his entire teaching has the, the, the foolishness of religious righteousness kind of in its crosshairs. The basic problem with religious righteousness is a preoccupation with outward appearance, which is the opposite of salt. Salt, we've said, is other-enhancing. Religious righteousness is preoccupied with self-enhancing. Religious people, for example, are not moral because they love the world and they want to enhance it, but because they love themselves and want God and others to recognize them. So Jesus gives all kinds of examples in the sermon. Matthew 6, 6, uh, verse 2. When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets, as hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Can you imagine with a trumpet announcing, I am about to give to the needy? Um, (laughs) It's just a weird thought. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And he goes on. Don't pray like the hypocrites who do it for attention. Pray in secret in your closet. Close the door. Don't, don't fast as a big display of piety. Hide your fast from others. Religious righteousness is an external shell with a hollow middle, a whitewashed tomb, Jesus says. It won't ultimately enhance or preserve anyone, yourself, others, or the world. So the religiously righteous, they don't murder, but their angry hearts kill in all sorts of other ways. They don't commit adultery, but, but their fantasies poison relationships. 
They come to church regularly. They take communion, but their heart is festering with resentments as they do. They apologize, maybe half-heartedly. Yeah, I was wrong, but what you need to understand is their, their hearts don't plumb the vulnerable depths of true repentance. Their intellectual or spiritual gifts aren't used to, to enhance the gathering they're in, but to take it over and dominate it and to impress everyone. This is foolishness, says Jesus. It's like building a house on, on shifting sand. It's useless. It's like salt that's lost its saltiness. So that's first. Religious righteousness is foolish. Gospel goodness is, is salty. Second, religious righteousness is dim, and gospel goodness is vibrant. Jesus goes on in verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, then, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. Gospel goodness is salty. It's also vibrant, like a lamp shining. Um, haven't I just said that the problem with religious people is that their piety is, is, is public, that they're driven by this compulsion for everyone to see them? So how do these two things go hand in hand? That's the obvious question. There are two differences between the vibrancy of gospel goodness and the, and the dimness of religious righteousness. First, gospel goodness is about the community, not the individual. Note that the yous and yours throughout here are plural. So here's the Texas translation. Y'all are the light of the world. <laughs> really would be helpful, I think. Y'all are the light of the world. You all. He's speaking to the community. The address is in the second person plural, not only because he's talking to like two people or more than one person, but because what is in view here is, is the, the discipleship community and its impact as a community. So Jesus is casting vision not just for your life, although it gets wrapped up in it, but for our life, our common life together as a community. He's saying that we, his disciples, are to be a, a countercultural community for the common good. Not one isolated rogue flame against a dark horizon, but, but a great swarm of lights gathered like a city on a hill. It isn't that the city has this big one giant spotlight on top for everyone to see. It's that all the different little porch lights and candles and people walking around gathered to create this great light. And in the ancient world, this light is bouncing off the white walls of the city built on a hill and it shines at night. That's the picture. While the, religious righteous, the religiously righteous are concerned mainly with just like their own little light being brighter, how, how amazing is my light? The gospel goodness is marked by, by a deep commitment to community to being with God's people. Second, gospel goodness glorifies God. Look at verse 16. Let your light shine before others. Why? That they may see your good deeds, sure, to glorify God who is in heaven. The end of religious righteousness is to glorify the self. The end of gospel goodness is like salt, to enhance, to glorify God, not the self. Now, of course, light is like salt in that it also has a, a positive and a kind of negative effect. Most obviously, when we think of light, what does light do? It, it attracts. I've been watching some planet Earth this week. Found this glowing fungi that, that traps unsuspecting beetles that are irresistibly drawn to its light. And of course, the, the bugs come drawn by the light and then they die. But, but, but light attracts, that's the principle. <laughs> you know, people are attracted to beaches. 
big, we've all seen big trees that slowly bend their branches towards the sun. Light attracts. This is a vision for the church's common life together, to draw people to its beauty. Imagine a church like that. Imagine a church of light, a church that warms the world, and a church that nourishes the world, that drenches each new day in golden brilliance like a sunset or a sunrise. One that people would see and say, I wish I had a community to warm and beautify me like that. So that your neighbors, you know, you have small group maybe at your house and, and your small group comes over and maybe helps you, I don't know. They, they see how there's a community around you that's supporting and helping and praying and, and bringing meals and, and it's like, I want, it, I want in on that. That's beautiful. There's all kinds of ways we could live that out. Well, light attracts, but it also exposes, doesn't it? Darkness hides flaws, light illuminates them. Your bathroom mirror probably has tons of light bulbs on it, so you can make sure you see all those little imperfections before you go out the door. Or that one of those like magnifying glass mirrors that shows you every pore on your nose, which in my case isn't hard. But anyways, that's not the point. That's kind of gross. Um, <laughs> darkness hides flaws, light illuminates them. Being the light of the world comes at a cost, is the point. The most dangerous thing I'm told you can do in trench warfare is to light a cigarette at night. Show the enemy where you are. Give him a target. Being a bright city in a dark world means being both a place of refuge but also a place of vulnerability. People may be attracted to your light or they may be exposed by it and offended by it. Often it's, the, it's, it's you, the person, that might be attractive to them and ultimately the gospel message might offend them. Well, consider what this means for you. It means that you, the closer you are to this light, the closer I am to this light, the more exposed you and I will be. This is why one sign of holiness in you is a deep awareness of your own sin. You are actually very close to the light if you are having trouble seeing past the plank in your own eye to find the speck in others. And the opposite is true. If your sins are specks to you and, and others are, pl are, are planks, then you may be veering away from gospel goodness towards religious righteousness because you're living by your own dim little light. It isn't enough to even expose you. You're too afraid to be exposed. But if you're living by the light of Christ, you're exposed. So when people, you know, are wrestling with their sin and they're, they're feeling like, oh, I feel embarrassed and ashamed and stuff, it's not that that shame is in its own category, but when people are wrestling with sin, it's actually a sign that they are on the path to holiness. Because they're exposed by Christ's light, they're aware of it. The bigger concern is when you're not aware of it at all and you think you're doing fine. That's a spiritually precarious place to be. And I think that's why you and I and, and most people are attracted to churches that, that don't seem perfect. Because we know it's sort of like religious, we know religious righteousness when we see it. We know that we're vulnerable, that we're imperfect, we're flawed. And so religious places make us uncomfortable because it's like, where's the, where's the imperfection? Where's the flaws? Where's the light of Christ exposing you guys? So I, I prefer a church and I prefer friends and, 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 and community where we're being vulnerable with each other and just honest. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing great today or I'm struggling with this sin and not trying to mask it and hide it and make it sound better than it is, but just saying, I'm exposed by the light of Christ and I need his grace. So gospel goodness is salty, it's vibrant, and lastly, religious righteousness is fickle, but gospel goodness is finished. If you read the Sermon on the Mount closely, you can't help but notice one word on repeat, Father. 17 times by my count. I could be wrong, but I counted at least 17 times. Jesus refers to God as our Father, and by implication, we as his children. 
Why is this teaching saturated with this language of father and son and daughter? The point of the sermon is not, if you do all this perfectly, then God will be your father. It's so easy to read it that way, isn't it? It's the opposite. Since God is your father, since you're secure in his family, you can learn to live this way. Well, I do think that Jesus means what he says. He really is calling us, you and I, his disciples, to live without lust and anger and vengeance and greed and pride in our hearts. This call has a double invitation in it. And the first invitation is that. We're to learn to live this way. This is a vision for our life together, towards which we really can travel with God's help. That's key, with God's help. The key here is verse 17, where Jesus says plainly, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so many preachers, including myself, come to this text, and maybe we've heard it taught that the point of this text is saying something like, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not abolishing the law, it's actually intensifying the law. You know, so you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't even harbor anger. It's intensifying the law, right? I don't think that's technically correct. I think it's fair to say that Jesus' teaching here is showing the direction that the law had always pointed. The point always was the heart. Do not murder always had a trajectory that the God's people would live with a, a shalom of heart that gathered into a peaceful society. And Jesus now, on the basis of his own authority as the interpreter of the law, says and makes clear the point, the point that always was there. He is, he's showing us that the law is meant to be radically interiorized. Our hearts are to be given fully over into total obedience to God, a complete self-giving to neighbor. And to those people who have been interpreting the law legalistically by the letter, they're thinking, if I do it here on the outside and I present everything right, then I'm technically doing the law and I'm fine. Jesus says, no, that's, that, you've missed the point entirely. The law points somewhere. It points to the heart. Don't murder means forgive, be at peace, be reconciled, bless instead of curse. And so Jesus clarifies these things, which has the practical effect of, think, of making us think, oh, wow, he's really intensifying the law, but he isn't. So Ezekiel 36 was always God's plan, where God says, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey in my rules. And listen to those words, I will cause you. God knows that a, a radical interiorization of his laws was never going to come from the external religious work of man, from, from religious righteousness as we've defined it. He knows it requires a work of the Spirit. We heard it in 1 Corinthians this morning. We heard it read. It, it requires more than just great ideas about God. It requires the Spirit to actually work with the power of God in us. And one of the best ways you can know that you've been caught up in gospel goodness is that you love his laws. Your heart is increasingly being disposed towards them. So yes, absolutely, you and I are still going to sin. We still sin. And when we do, more and more we're learning to hate it. We see it for what it is. Instead of just wanting to indulge it and love it and cherish it, more and more we're finding ourselves like, oh. And we're more and more drawn to how beautiful and good God's ways are. We're falling in love with them. And, it, and that's a process. I was talking to someone who was a new Christian this week. And one of the things that I've noticed marks new Christians, especially if, you know, um, one of the things that marks new Christians is they just love God's word. That thought just kind of flew away. They just love God's words. It happened to me in seventh grade when I had this conversion experience. I just wanted to read the Bible all summer. So do you find yourself loving God's word? 
Do you find yourself welcoming conviction when it, when it, when it sort of stings a little bit? And, it's, and it's, it's, it's addressing something in you. That's the Spirit of the Lord in you working. So that's the first invitation, is to really let him work and, and to conform you actually to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that's a bit intimidating. The second invitation must ground us and comfort us. The second invitation is to receive the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. How in the world is our righteousness supposed to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, there's a qualitative difference. That's what we've been saying. Instead of being an outward righteousness, it's a heart-level inward righteousness. So one scholar paraphrases the teaching this way. Jesus is saying, don't imagine that simply keeping all those rules will bring you salvation. That's religious righteousness. For I tell you, truly, it is only those whose righteousness of life goes far beyond the old policy of literal rule-keeping, which the scribes and Pharisees represent. Only those who go far beyond will prove to be God's true people. What does far beyond mean? It means going from external to internal. But on the other hand... The wider witness of the New Testament makes one thing abundantly clear. The perfection to which Jesus has called us, and he has called us to perfection, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, is not ultimately our work, it is his work. Jesus didn't come just as a teacher or a good example. If, if, if he had, then why did he, you know, he wouldn't have needed to go to the cross. We can follow a teacher or a good example and, and sort of learn the Sermon on the Mount But he died on a cross because he didn't just come for that. He also came to be our substitute. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A Savior, a Redeemer. He lived the life we should have lived. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, actually what we're seeing there is Jesus' life. If you look at the Beatitudes, we're actually seeing there is Jesus' life. The one who perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. He lived the life we should have lived. Died the death we deserved in order to give us his life, his righteousness, his love. And that's why the sermon 17 times says, he's your father, you're his child. Now, my love for my children is, is irreversible. It is secure. It is inevitable. It is final. It's not hanging in the air like, I wonder if I'm going to love it. It's, it's done forever. He is a father who loves us this way. He is not a boss who's giving us quarterly performance reviews on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, you did okay here, you know. No. He's a father. The Sermon on the Mount is not an ethical ladder that you must climb to get him. He has already got you. And the Sermon on the Mount is his, now his vision for you, his family. He is, he's casting vision for the good life, for a, light, uh, for a life of saltiness and, and vibrancy. And when you apprehend in your heart that he has perfectly fulfilled the law, it's done, and he's given you the gift of his spirit, and now he's at work in you to, to, to bring the, the law to life in your heart, that's when you find you actually want to obey him. You actually do want to follow his law. It actually your, becomes your joy. And that's why I began and, and will close with William Cowper's old hymn. The name of the hymn is No Strength of Nature Can Suffice. No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. 
to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child in duty and a choice. Father, as we sung, sung this morning, would you, would you strengthen us to shine against the dark as, as a community? And would you, through your power, which, which we need, would you bring to life your light in us, make us a, a salty people, a vibrant people? In those places where the Sermon on the Mount humbles us, where we just recognize how far we have fallen short of your law, would you cause that conviction to well up into a deep gratitude for Christ? has perfectly obeyed your law and gives, gives us his righteousness. We're secure in that. We're secure in him. You, our Father, we, your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.